You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Robert Serling, the brother of Rod, once said in a BBC Radio 4 documentary that he felt his brother would have trouble selling The Twilight Zone as it wouldn't have a regular cast. It's one of the nice things about The Twilight Zone is that we get to see a large array of actors come and go into the fifth dimension, although there were those that came back for a second visit. Actors like William Shatner and Dick York are just two examples of names we'll hear on more than one occasion as we cover the series as a whole, but there were some who kept coming back for more. Of course, there's Burgess Meredith, a true pillar of the Twilight Zone, who had four episode appearances in the original series, and he also narrated the 1980s movie adaptation. But there was one actor who matched Meredith's record in Twilight Zone episodes, and many would tell you was one of the finest performers to step into Rod Serling's world of the bizarre. That man was Jack Klugman, and tonight's episode, A Passage for Trumpet, would be his first visit. Joey Crown. Musician with an odd, intense face, whose life is a quest for impossible things, like flowers in concrete, or like trying to pluck a note of music out of the air and put it under glass to treasure. Joey Crown, musician with an odd, intense face, who in a moment will try to leave the earth and discover the middle ground, the place we call the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 20th of May 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by Don Medford, who we'll be seeing again in the upcoming episode The Man in the Bottle, The Mirror, Death's Head Revisited, and Death Ship. Like a lot of TV directors, he was a very busy man, and he was known for doing action shows like Beretta and The FBI, but he also worked on popular anthology shows like Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, and he also helmed an impressive 36 episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, the show that predated The Twilight Zone by nearly a decade. In his early work, he was a fan of shooting day for night, which, for those who are not in the know, it's when a director would shoot during the day and make it look like nighttime using filters and camera techniques rather than waiting for darkness to actually fall. Because of this, he earned himself the nickname Midnight Medford. In the Twilight Zone companion, Buck Houghton says of him, Don was especially useful when you needed to be very, very gripping, and where violence of nature had something to do with it. I don't mean violence in the sense of a baseball bat hitting a guy's head, I mean the tensions that go around violence. Don appreciates those, he likes them, and he struggles for them. As Mark Zickery points out in the following paragraph, if gripping was what Don Medford was after, then he found the right man in Jack Klugman. A very talented character actor, Klugman was often considered to be the epitome of the everyman. His iconic roles of Dr. R. Quincy and Quincy M.E. and Oscar Madison in The Odd Couple alongside Tony Randall will certainly stand out more than his four appearances in The Twilight Zone, but that's not to say that he didn't make an impact, and some of his performances are among the best. His next episode won't be until the third season in an episode called A Game of Pool, which is an episode that I really, really enjoy, and I'm looking forward to getting to that one a little bit later down the line. In A Passage for Trumpet, he really is the standout of the episode in which a good performance is save a fairly simple tale. 
The costume design for Joey certainly helps his character, that grimy and dirty suit that looks like it hasn't been washed or even taken off since his last show, but it's the way that Klugman carries himself in that suit that really sells the character of Joey Crown. At the start of the episode, we see him standing outside of the back entrance of a club, and Klugman has this real look of desperation and longing in his eyes, as if he was so close that he could almost taste it. You know, both men had good and long careers, and it's a sad coincidence that both Klugman and Medford passed away around two weeks of each other in December 2012. Me? I forgot what the stuff tastes like. Six, seven months, I'm way up on the wagon. Sure, Joey, sure. What am I, some kind of kook? Look, Baron, I, I know what that stuff does to me, but I ain't an old man. Me and the horn, we got a lot of years left. I could be a number one boy. Sure, you know, what am I gonna do, chuckle away on some bum haddock? You know? Listen, that's a pretty mellow horn, and I got some nice music in here. You know yourself, when I pick it up and I blow it, I can make them cry. What do you say, Ben? It might seem cliche now, the musician who could have had everything but lost it all to his alcoholic demons, but I think it works well for Crown's character. It's hard to feel sorry for him as he's brought it all upon himself, but at the same time, that look of determination in his eyes makes you want to root for him. You know, I've been in plenty of bands over the years that have uh, fallen apart for various reasons, and when they do, it, it's really hard to let go of playing in front of a live audience. It's then hard to go to gigs in general, and it's especially hard when it's your friend that's playing in their band that didn't break up. Sure, you're enjoying the show and you're supporting your friend, but you just wish that it was you that was on that stage doing what you love doing, and Klugman really shows this in his facial expressions. Without the use of words, you know that this is something the Crown was born to do, and the fact that he can't beat his demons makes him all the more a sympathetic character. I do think Crown is a good man. He's just made some wrong choices, and when you make enough bad choices in your life, you feel like nothing is going to work out for you. Don't do it. For old times, Joey, huh? For old times when you had it. A magic horn. Harry James and Max Kaminsky and Butterfield. A little bit of all of them, baby. You traded it off for some bad hooch and you got took. You got the crummy end of the stick. Why, Joey, why? Because I'm sad. Because I'm nothing. Because I'll live and die in a crummy one-roomer with dirty walls and cracked pipes. And I'll never even have a girl. I'll never be anybody, because half of me is this horn. I can't even talk to people, Baron, because this horn, that's half my language. But when I'm drunk, Baron, oh, when I'm drunk, boy, I don't see the dirty walls or the cracked pipes. I don't know the clock's going, that the hours are going by, because then I'm Gabriel. Oh, I'm, I'm Gabriel with a golden horn. And when I put it to my lips, it comes out jeweled. 
comes out a symphony. Comes out the smell of, of fresh flowers in summer. Comes out beauty. Beauty. In the following scene, we painfully watch Joey sell his most prized possession, and it's even harder when he just gives up immediately when given the price. He does try to question, but it's like he's lost all power to argue, and it's really quite sad, and, and again, it's a testament to how good Klugman is in this episode. <laughs> However, it, it's hard to then feel sorry for him when we next see Crown leaving a bar, presumably spending the money that he just made selling his trumpets, and he walks past the pawn shop and he spots that his bugle is now being sold for $25. So, feeling like he can't take it anymore, he runs out in front of a passing truck. <coughs> Director of photography George Clements remembers, Klugman gave one of the finest performances I've ever seen an actor give. But I got Rod and Buck down on the set in the middle of the second day. I said, if you're not going to stop the director, the way he's going with this picture is going to be an hour picture. But if you can figure out a way we can put it into two episodes, or get the network to let it go for an hour, we'll have one of the greatest pictures ever seen. They wouldn't go with me, and unfortunately they cut the picture into shreds. But even with the heavy cuts made to the story, you've got to wonder whether suicide was the only way out for Joey Crown. Given the episode's time frame, Medford paints a very clear picture that it would suggest there was no other way out, and Serling's script doesn't offer up any alternatives, but could this all have been avoided? Crown was clearly a very talented musician, and if he could have just beaten his demons, he'd be, as he said earlier in the episode, making them cry again with his music. Perhaps if he'd have used the money he got selling his trumpet to put towards a new suit and found a new club to play in, or perhaps Joey was just such a short-sighted character that he only ever saw the bottom of barrels as well as beer glasses. And when I watch this episode, I look at someone like Kurt Cobain, and he was a man who really could have had it all. To call him a brilliant musician would be a stretch. He was competent, don't get me wrong, but he was more of a talented songwriter than a classic musician. Kurt was a man who had a big impact on my formative and teenage years, as he did for many people of my generation. But the drugs just got the better of him, you know? Those who have read his suicide note will know that he blamed the pressures of celebrity, but if you read his journal that was released around 10 years ago, you'll see that there was more to his death than just escaping fame. He was a deeply troubled man, and maybe that's why he turned into heroin in the first place. Like Cobain, maybe there is more to Jerry Crown than just a dirty suit and a lack of girlfriend, and had the episode been given the hour-long time frame, we might have had a bit of chance to explore that further. You know, the fourth season of The Twilight Zone is much maligned, and quite fairly so, but perhaps an episode like this would have slotted in quite nicely there. So, Joey wakes up, and it's now night time, and surprisingly for someone who's been hit by a car, there's no one crowded around him. He tries to explain to a police officer that he's not drunk, but the cop just ignores him. Only he doesn't just ignore him, it's like he doesn't even see him. And soon Joey finds out that, in fact, no one can see him. Excuse me, buddy, you have another. Excuse me, pal, you haven't have a match? I said you haven't have a match. Movies better than ever? Oh, look, lady, I ain't a masher. But you see, 
I, I know the girl that usually works here, Gracie. I was going to tell her what happened to me. This big truck and I, we tangled, and the first thing I knew, I was... Well, look, at least you can be a little courteous. I mean... Look at me! I've always been a fan of on-set camera tricks and effects, you know. I think it's a bit of a lost art. We live in an age where it's simpler to create special effects with a team of computer artists, and there's nothing wrong with that, but simple practical effects always bring a smile to my face, and there's a pretty good one here. Joey looks to the right of frame, and the camera pans around towards a mirror that shows a perfect reflection of the cinema entrance, only Joey cannot be seen in it. I don't think it would take a genius to work out that they simply built two matching sets of cinema entrances, separated out by a wall with a hole in it to act as the mirror, but the effect is made all the better by casting identical twins as the cinema clerk and her counterpart reflection, so that when Joey creeps up towards the mirror with the camera pan, we see the cinema clerk is still visible. It's a simple effect, but it really has an impact. It's a bit like the opening shot of The Four of Us Are Dying, which utilised a very similar shot method to show how Arch Hammer could change his face, and it's little touches like this that really elevate the Twilight Zone, you know. It gives it a certain charm. It's not perfect, and there are those who will point out the goofs in the episode, like how you can see Cran's reflection in the glass of the cinema booth, but I think if you're looking for things like that, then you're not really focusing on the story, and the story is what really counts in this episode, along with Klugman's performance. So it's at this point where Joey reached a conclusion that many Twilight Zone fans might have already come to. I'm dead. That's it. I'm just plain old deceased. We discover later on that this isn't really the case, and I think it's quite clever of Serling to put this plot point here as as I say, it's probably what a lot of people will be thinking. It's better to put it here rather than to leave them down this path only to swerve them at the end, you know. So Joey heads back to the club that he might have once called home, and that's where he hears the sound of a trumpet being played. Stop it. It's coming out beautiful. Thanks. That's all right. You said thanks. Thanks. You hear me? I hear you. You see me? Very clearly. Oh, you're a ghost too, huh? <laughs> Not really. I am. I stepped in front of a rather large vehicle this morning. It ain't good for the health, believe me. Now, the trumpet player who we later discover is called Gabriel was played by an actor called John Anderson who was often cast to play Abraham Lincoln due to his striking resemblance, and while A Passage for Trumpet is really Jack Klugman's show, I do think that Anderson does a good job in this role. He's calm, soothing, and he delivers his lines with conviction to really show Joey the mistakes he made in walking in front of the car. See you around, Joey. Hey! Hey, mister! What is it, Joey? I didn't get your name. How's that? Your name! I didn't get your name! My name? Call me Gabe. Gabe? Gabe. Short for Gabriel. At the start of the episode, Joey compares himself to Gabriel when he plays his horn, so 
I suppose you have to question whether he really did go into this limbo state or whether this was all just in his head after he'd been knocked out, as if he had that kind of dream that when you wake up you realise that you need to make some drastic changes in your life. I guess it's all up for interpretation, which is one of the great things about the Twilight Zone and doing this podcast, but Serling would often use science fiction as a veil to tell a story of character or to get a political point across, so it wouldn't be a stretch to think that he's done the same thing here. So Joey wakes up to find that he's now out of the limbo world, or dream depending on your point of view, and he has a new lease on life. He goes back to the pawn shop to buy his bugle, and when we next see him he's on a rooftop playing the music he loves, much to the delight and joy of a young lady named Nam, who Twilight Zone enthusiasts will know was the nickname Serling gave to his daughter, which he also used in the episode Nightmare as a Child. The two talk, and it seems that Joey's found himself the girlfriend he thought he was never going to get. What I will say about this scene is that I do feel it's a little bit tacked on just to give Joey further closure. It is nice, and it's good to see him find some happiness, but for me the episode is more about his love of music than it is about wanting a girlfriend. With that said, it's great to see Klugman shine in this scene, and it shows what a great performer he was. When Nam offers him the chance to show her around town, the script direction for Joey reads, The smile again that stretches from ear to ear, the face that lights up like a hundred watt bulb, and it is in this moment we see a beauty in this face, and a sensitivity, and a gentleness. What is amazing about Klugman's performance here is that he does everything the script says, as if it was written after the fact to match his performance. You know, you may like it here. It's not a bad town. Oh, I'm sure it isn't. Maybe... Maybe you could show me some of it. Me? to her. Well, I could show you the battery and I could show you Central Park. I could show you 52nd Street. We could go in and listen Earlier this year I, I went to go and see American Hustle based off the high praise it was getting from all the press and was amazed to discover that it wasn't all that great. Its story wasn't that engaging and its characters were pretty weak and bland, but its style and amazing performances certainly helped elevate it beyond being a bad movie. While I don't think the story of A Passage for Trumpet is weak or flat, this is an episode which is carried by its central performance. The episode's success really rests on Klugman's shoulders, and he never looks like he struggles with it at all. The plot simply moves from point A to point B and so on, which made it hard to recap interestingly I'll be honest, but the whole piece works due to his magnetic presence. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickery calls the episode a mini-masterpiece, which I struggle to agree with, but sometimes a strong performance, like the one we have here from Jack Klugman or Christian Bale in American Hustle, can make an alright episode a pretty darn good one. Joey Crown, who makes music, and who discovered something about life, that it can be rich and rewarding and full of beauty, just like the music he played. If a person would only pause to look and to listen. Joey Crown, who got his clue in the Twilight Zone. Just wanted to say a couple of quick thank yous before I leave. Taking over the show was always going to be a big task, and I've got to admit I was pretty terrified to put the episode up, but the positive reaction I've had from everyone has been really great and very, very humbling. 
So I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has sent me an email or tweeted me since my first episode went up last week. I really appreciate it. No feedback sent to me this week, but if you do have any thoughts you want to send about this episode or any of the episodes we discuss on the Twilight Zone podcast, please email me or send me an mp3 to luke at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. Lastly, I just wanted to pass my condolences to the family and friends of Mickey Rooney who passed away this week at the age of 93. He was a wonderful actor and an incredible talent and he will be truly missed. His connection to The Twilight Zone and Rod Serling stretched beyond the Season 5 episode The Last Night of the Jockey, with the Night Gallery episode Rare Objects and an episode of Playhouse 90 called The Comedian, which was written by Rod Serling. My favourite Mickey Rooney story I've heard was that he wrote a letter of disgust against the 1984 slasher movie Silent Night Deadly Night, stating that everyone who made the movie was scum, but would go on then to feature in the 1991 director video sequel Silent Night Deadly Night 5 The Toymaker which I always found to be quite funny. I guess that was just the kind of actor Mickey Rooney was. So from all of us at the Twilight Zone Network, we raise our glass to you. So next week, we'll be looking at the much maligned episode of the Twilight Zone, Mr. Beavis. So if you have any thoughts on that one, please send them across. I look forward to hearing from you. I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.